Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. It's time when we can um, begin to sort of settle down, focus on the Lord, have a little prayer, quiet prayer, silent prayer before we begin. Make sure you're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we can be here this evening to focus upon you, to study your word, to be reminded of the depth and the breadth of your word, that you have revealed so much to us, and yet all that is necessary to probe these depths is to truly believe that this is your word to us and to understand that we are to mine it as we would mine for silver or gold or diamonds, because the truth that we find here is more valuable than anything that anything else that we could ever discover in the created realm. Father, we pray that you might encourage us as we study tonight that we have an understanding and grasp of the truth, and that is we study all truth in Scripture. It has value for us in our spiritual life and understanding how things should be and because it's consistent with your creation and your revelation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, day after tomorrow, many Americans will celebrate Thanksgiving. And for most Americans, it is a day when they overeat and when they watch football games and when they have to get together with a lot of family members that they rarely see and frequently don't like. So it's a challenge for a lot of people just to make it through the stress of the holiday. But there is a reason for this holiday, and it goes back to the founding of this nation. And we're in a time now in uh, the wonderful uh, election season that that they've become over the recent years where so much... uh, animosity and so many lies that are told, just downright misrepresentations. And it happens on both sides of the aisle. Uh, But one of the things that has really been put in the crosshairs of uh, enemies of the truth is the role of Christianity in the founding of this nation. And Thanksgiving is a holiday that that focuses on the fact that at the very beginning, uh, the pilgrims came, and they were pilgrims because they were Christians, they were uh, Anabaptist, separatist, a separatist group out of England that had left England uh, several years before and had lived for some time in Holland. And then they had the opportunity to come to the, to, uh, to, uh, the New World and to establish a colony. And they 
left at the chance because they would have freedom to worship God as the, and to raise their children the way that they believed God wanted them to uh, raise their children and to establish a new home. And they came for primarily for uh, religious reasons. They didn't come because they were motivated by greed or because they wanted to establish new trade opportunities. They didn't come because they had civil uh, disagreements with the uh, king of England, which, of course, they did. But that wasn't what motivated them. What motivated them was their belief in God and their desire to study the Bible, to study the Word of God, and to make it a vital part of their life and to let the Word of God impact every area of their life. They they weren't Puritans. The Puritans came a little bit later, but they held to a, a similar form of theology in many ways. They were, uh, they were Calvinist. But in that time, in that era in Western civilization, in the history of Western civilization, as the world uh, of the West was in turmoil because of what had begun a little over a uh, hundred years earlier, when Martin Luther had uh, begun the Protestant Reformation, and that began a century or more of of conflict between uh, Roman Catholic uh, power base that had dominated uh, Western Europe and was cor- had become corrupt to its core, and this new movement that was generated by uh, people who wanted to get to the truth of God's word. They didn't believe in all of the trappings of the papacy. They had been re- become revolted by uh, the corruption that had become uh, one with the Roman Catholic Church at, at that time in history. And so for a 100 years or so, this discord and wars had been fought, and people uh, who would one day find themselves, especially in England, one year would find themselves with a monarch who was pro-Protestant, and then the next year they would have a monarch that was anti-Protestant. And you would be taken to, uh, either you would be hung or you would be taken out uh, to be burned at the stake if you didn't have the and understand the theological issues. People took theology extremely serious at this at that particular time in history, and they were willing to leave their homes, leave everything behind, and to go to a wilderness because they because of what they believed in the truth. Now, modern secular postmodern uh, scholars today just can't understand that. They have no frame of reference for that. They they equate that with some sort of radical Islamist. Uh, because it shows that they understand, uh, they don't understand much about either Islam or Christianity, mostly because they don't understand religion, because they are all religious. And no one can really understand the truth of, of a religion if they discount it all as just, uh, just superstition that can't really impact the way people think on a day-to-day basis. And so we live in a world today where your children and your grandchildren have been uh, taught about the founding of this nation by people who discount the religious convictions and beliefs that were everything to our uh, uh, founders. But by the time you get to the late uh, late 18th century and into the time of the revolutionary uh, period and the founding of this nation, 
other influences were, were present, influences from the uh, Enlightenment, influences from uh, other, other religious groups that come to America. And so uh, now there's the, the prominent thinking is that Christianity didn't have anything to do with that. And so you know from what I've taught in the past how vital uh, Christian thinking was and how it influenced everybody. It wasn't that everybody was a committed Christian, wasn't that they were committed to the Bible, but this is what informed their culture and their thinking. And so tonight I thought I would read for you the uh, proclamation for a day of thanksgiving from the first president of the United States. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend, quote, to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November, next to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previously to their becoming a nation, for the signal and manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence, which we experienced in the tranquility, union, and plenty which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one now lately instituted. That's our Constitution, uh, our present Constitution still. For the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed and the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge and in general for all the great and various favors which he hath been pleased to confer upon us and also that we may then unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions, to enable us all, whether in public or private stations, to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually, to render our national government a blessing to all the people by constantly being a government of wise, just, and constitutional laws, discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed to protect and guide all sovereigns and nations, especially such as have shown kindness unto us, and to bless them with good government, peace, and concord, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue, and the increase of science among them and us, and generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows to be best. Given under my hand at the city of New York, the third day of October, 
in the year of our Lord, 1789. Proclamation by our first president, George Washington. Well, as part of our study, we're taking a slight diversion in our study of Acts to come to an understanding of what the Bible teaches about economics. And this is important because we live in a time when very few people understand that there are absolute laws built into creation by the Creator, the Creator God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the of, uh, Jews and Christians, the God who revealed himself objectively to us in the Bible. And so we can go to the Bible to find truth about uh, everything, and we can discover truth about every aspect of creation that gives us a framework for coming to understand uh, his creation and to live in that creation in a way that is consistent with it. We start violating these establishment or creation principles that were laid down from the very beginning, then we see the kind of mess that we're getting into uh, Western Europe, which I, as I saw a report on Western Europe this morning that um, an economist was asked if uh, the situation there is comparable to what happened here in 2008, and his reply was, yes, but they've overspent about five times as much, and that that it is because of you know the whole problem that in stating his opinion with the euro and trying to have a unified currency for so many disparate nations that had so many different approaches to fiscal policy that they did not have a unified way of looking at uh, expenditures and budgeting and all these other things. And when you go to the scriptures, the scriptures address issues related to spending and indebtedness and many other things that are, are part of uh, this problem. And because we have overspent that doesn't mean that we spent money on things that we shouldn't have spent money on or that they weren't good things, let's say. But there are many good things, as you know, in your family, in your budget, that there are many good and wonderful things that you can spend money on, but you just don't have the money to spend. And it doesn't. when we say we're not going to spend money on certain things, it doesn't mean that it's not good and it's not proper and it shouldn't be, that we shouldn't have those things. What it does mean is that we recognize that there are absolute principles and laws that operate in the realm of economics just as they do in every other realm of creation. And when you violate them, then eventually, uh, because of the weight of indebtedness, it leads to judgment. It leads to a collapse. It leads to destruction, what the Bible usually refers to as a curse. So we have been going through, methodically going through, uh, the scriptures starting in Genesis and working our way forward to see what principles we can identify. I, I've used the illustration of, of um, uh, putting down fence posts. That the Bible is not a textbook on capitalism per se. Capitalism, as most uh, economic historians would say, did not come in the modern form, does not come into existence until uh, the modern period. It was preceded by numerous other systems of, of uh, economics, mercantilism, uh, a number of other, other things. But they all, the, those that were successful all followed 
similar basic principles which are the ones that are laid down in in the scriptures. And so I'm going to point out what these review, for a little bit of review, point out these fence posts. The first was what I described as the first divine institution, first divine institution of personal responsibility, indicating that every one of us is accountable to God for what we do with whatever resources God gives us. And sometimes we risk those resources and we have nothing. And we have to face the consequences of that. And to the degree that, that there are those who prevent us from, from reaping those consequences, reaping what we have sown, we fail to learn the lessons. If you are, if we violate the laws of economics and yet, uh, we don't have to face the uh, consequences of those bad decisions, then we don't learn the lessons. Uh, so there's a principle there in terms of accountability. And it's hard. It's hard to watch people. Just think of you're watching your kids and your kids go out and they somebody, uh, while they're off at college, some company sends them a credit card application. They fill it out and they get a credit card. Four years later when they graduate from college, they have a $70,000 credit card bill. And that is not unusual today. Uh, students graduating with thirty, forty, fifty thousand not just student loan debt, but credit card debt because they've, over, they've overspent. They, they never learned how to use a, properly use a credit card. They never learned that they have to pay for whatever it is that they get. And so they're, now they're in a, a mess. And you, as a parent, you look at that and you think, oh, I just want to bail them out. Well, you may help them to some degree, and there are many ways to help them without paying off their bill. That, that means they get off scot-free for all their irresponsibility. But uh, you can help them by uh, giving them a plan to work their way through the, in, the indebtedness that they incurred. And perhaps as time goes by, you might want to deal with them graciously. But don't take away the opportunity for them to learn a vital lesson, that one that will uh, stick with them for the rest of their life. That's how God handles us. And there's, there's uh, responsibility on how we handle or mishandle the resources that he uh, that he gives us. So the first aspect that we looked at was personal responsibility and accountability. So that as you grow older, we are to save and put aside for the future so that when the years come, when we cannot be as productive as we can be when we're younger, that we have laid aside for those times and we can take care of ourselves without being reliant upon others. So we have personal responsibility and accountability, and that led to the understanding of the establishment of labor and work uh, as service to God before the fall and the rights of man, the rights of mankind to enjoy the, the rewards of, of his own labor and not to have that taken from them. That leads to the... Uh, next fence post, which was private property. Private property, uh, part of that is just the uh, reaping what, you've, what you have produced, uh, enjoying what you've produced, owning the product of your own hard labor, but also um, establishing the um, uh, 
uh, uh, pri- your pri- private property under God. I left one out in terms of it didn't pop up. It's supposed to go in that blank there. It'll probably come up later. And that was value. We studied value before we got to private property. We studied value. What makes something valuable? What makes something valuable? Uh, I used two illustrations. One was uh, uh, petroleum. In the 1500s, petroleum did not have the value that it does today. There wasn't a need for it. Uh, Water is another uh, example. Water in Minnesota is not as valuable as water in the Sahara Desert. So the point that I made was that value is imputed to something. It doesn't have intrinsic value, but it is. uh, We impute value to something, and this. this supports the doctrine of uh, free market uh, economics. We see it in the stock market, how the stock market works in terms of uh, supply and demand and value of uh, stocks for companies go up and down relative to supply, demand, and, and many other factors as well. The idea is that where there is a great supply and very little need, then we impute very little value to the product. But if there is a small supply, you just have a small amount of water, for example, in the Sahara, and there is a great need, then the value of that product goes up. And so water in the Sahara is much more valuable than water in in Minnesota. And we saw this has implications. Understanding imputation of value has implications for uh, many things, including and uh, most importantly, understanding what Christ did on the cross and the imputation uh, of righteousness. So from there, we looked at private property and a number of different passages, and we covered this uh, last time. Key passage to understand in a biblical approach is that all the resources that are out there belong to God. The psalm, psalmist says that God owns a, the cattle on a thousand hills. God is the ultimate owner of his creation. God owns uh, all of the resources. He owns all of the land. In Leviticus 25.23, God said that the land shall not be sold permanently. Now, they have under the Mosaic Law, and because of the the purpose that God called Israel for, some things are a little bit different. This is one of the difficulties in going through the Mosaic Law, is what has just unique, distinct application to Israel with no application to anyone else and what has application as well to other other nations. But in Leviticus 25 to 23, God says, the land shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And so as we look at the Mosaic law, what's embedded in the Mosaic law is an understanding that God ultimately owns the land and owns the resources, and it is God who then determines how these are used and how this is, uh, this is handled. When there is a blessing from God, then things are discovered, the land is productive. When people are disobedient, then there's judgment from God. Rain is withheld. The, the land does not produce as it does uh, when the people are blessed. And that tells us, shows an important principle, and that is that no matter how much we study economics or politics, or any other area of human endeavor, uh, from just the vantage point of, of empiricism, there's always a factors that are left out. 
And uh, when we ask questions in economics, what causes uh, recession? What causes inflation? What causes uh, productivity? What causes a nation to be prosperous and another nation to uh, fall into economic collapse? That ultimately the scripture says that this has to do with God and his sovereignty and, and the plan of God. And that is the unseen factor. When God tells the Israelites in Leviticus 26 that if you obey me, then I will bring the rain in due season. Now tell me what scientists can, can draw an empirical connection between the rain and um, fertility in a country and their obedience to God. That's, their obedience to God is not a quantifiable factor. Then you have... Um, on the flip side, God promising judgment that he will withhold the rain and the land will be, the sun, will, the sky will be like brass and the the soil like iron if you're disobedient. Well, well, what's the cause and effect there? What, how can you empirically measure and quantify uh, this relationship between uh, a nation's spiritual obedience or disobedience and what's, what's happening uh, economically? And you, you can't quantify it. You can't measure it. It's, it's outside the realm of, uh, of human observability. But yet that's God's, God's promise. Well, as we look at private property, I went to uh, some of the, the commandments in the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment, which says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, recognizing that there was a period of time when man should labor, that this is something man should do that we are going to labor and work and toil and be productive. This is our responsibility. But yet there was also to be a time of rest, a time, uh, a day out of the six, out of the seven, rather, when um, uh, man would not work and rest and trust in God. So there's a recognition of the value of labor there. We looked at the eighth commandment. In Exodus 20:15, you shall not steal. This really lays down the framework for why certain economic systems are not valid, are unrighteous in the term that is used in um, in the Torah, in the Mosaic Law. Over 95 times you have the noun form for righteous used in the Torah. And that because law should be righteous, and this is the requirement for law that be righteous and just. And so violation of these principles is unrighteousness. And so stealing is what happens under socialism. Stealing is what happens when a person does not have the right to determine what to do with their own productivity. This is what happens when a government comes in and abuses their authority of taxation by taking that which uh, they have not produced and is engaged in a social experiment to redistribute wealth, which violates any number of principles, including the basic principle, the divine institution number one of human responsibility, because now you're letting people, you're letting those citizens in your country who are not motivated, who are lazy, get the same uh, income as those who have worked hard. And eventually what happens is that everything falls apart and moves to the lowest common denominator. Those who are motivated end up with the same thing as those who aren't, so those who are motivated lose their motivation. 
you shall not steal recognizes that there is the right to private ownership of property. The Tenth Commandment, Exodus twenty seventeen, is where we ended last time. You shall not cover your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or his male servant, his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything uh, that is your neighbor's. And what this does is it focuses on a mental attitude of jealousy and envy and lust for what is not yours. And this we see in a number of different different movements. Uh, Occupy Wall Street uh, is just one of the most recent, is that uh, while they are out on the street um, accusing and being critical of corporations for their excessive greed, on the other hand, they want all student loans to be wiped out. Well, that's just their form of greed. They just want to substitute their form of greed for the form of greed that they perceive to be in various corporations. And so it is just one form of evil fighting another form of evil, one form of greed fighting another form of greed. And neither are righteous. I don't care how many people you can find in the crowds that might have a good idea here or there. The majority of them are there because they think they can get a free ride somewhere if we just get rid of uh, these corporations. They're casting blame where there may be a legitimate cause for blame, but their solution is just as bad as many other solutions, and they want to, and they have destroyed much private property, which makes it a very negative movement uh, to begin with. Last time I looked at Luke twelve thirteen to, as an illustration of the... Uh, thrust of the fallen man to desire what he has not earned or worked for. And uh, this evening I want us to turn to Luke chapter 20. Turn to the Gospel of Luke again. And I want you to go to Luke chapter 20. Now these parables, I pointed this out last time, these parables um, recognize a certain reality that exists in the business world. At the time that Jesus was alive, it was an agrarian business world. It wasn't the kind of industrial uh, business that we have today or stock market business or many of the other things that go on, but it recognizes a certain validity to, to doing business, and it accepts it as valid. There's not a criticism within these parables of what, uh, what is going on here in terms of how the landowner, uh, how a landowner handles certain things in relationship to his uh, servants or his employees, and so there's a recognition that employees, employers, or landowners, those who, to put it in modern terminology, those who uh, control the means of produ- production or who own the means of production, can determine uh, what they pay their workers and, and other things of that nature. And so we go to these parables not to look at the what the message of the parable was at the time that Jesus gave it, But as he gives the parable, he's validating certain economic uh, practices and principles. And that's what we're looking at. So in in, uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 9, Jesus begins to give the people another, another parable. He says, A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. So here you have this first man. Of course, this represents God. And he is, uh, this, this is all related to spiritual things, but we're not going to look at it in terms of the spiritual application, just in terms of the, the, the economic principle. The certain man here is the landowner. 
He plants a vineyard. He owns the land, and he plants a crop, and he has the right to earn a living from the land. The way he is going to do it is through uh, sort of tenant farming, to put it into a modern, uh, modern framework. So he plants his vineyard, and he leases it out to tenant farmers, to vine dressers, and he goes off to a far country for a long time. Now, at vintage time, he sent a servant back to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. So he wants to enjoy the produce, the product of his production. He wants to enjoy the benefits of his production, which he owns because he is the landowner. He's the, he owns the, um, the factory. He owns the corporation. And so he has a right to the profits of that corporation. So, but when he sends his assistant to pick up the profits, the vine dressers, the employees, the tenant farmers, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. What has happened? They want to keep the products for themselves. That's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. They're stealing they don't own the means of production. They don't own the results of production. They are merely the workers, but they are they're stealing. This is not unlike Marxism, where the are what happens in many labor unions. They may not go quite this far, but basically, what what's happened in many labor unions today is they've just become another another layer of management. You have all the labor union officials, and they've just become another. Another layer of management that takes has a mandated uh, uh, labor union dues, and they take that, and they have to have a president of the union and vice president, and that's just another layer of, of management. The whole thing's become topsy-turvy. So here we have this situation where the, the workers uh, want to own what is not theirs. In verse 11, again, he sent another servant, another assistant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, sent him away empty-handed, and again he sent a third they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Well, of course, we know this is designed to teach the principle that God is the owner of everything on the planet, and he has sent, and he's especially the owner of the land of Israel, as we just read in, uh, in Leviticus. And so he has sent his servants, the prophets, uh, many times with messages, and they have been rejected, and they were turned out. So finally God sent his son. Uh, verse 13, I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. See, their motivation is to steal the property of the one who, uh, proper, who, um, who owns it. Uh, remember, the main idea in inheritance is property ownership. So what they want to do is they want the inheritance, the property to be theirs. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him, and they want to steal what belongs to the factory owner, to the corporation owner, to the CEO. In this case, it's God. So they want to steal the planet from God. That's essentially the viewpoint of those who are unbelievers and those who are not following God's word. They want to make run the world according to their views, their standards, and not God's. So we pick up a few principles. And another illustration here of what covetousness is, what this envy, it's an envy to take 
what isn't ours and make it ours, something that we haven't earned, something that we haven't, uh, we haven't worked for. So again, that just validates and illustrates the principle of private ownership of property. Then the next uh, fence post I put down uh, is the, and I'm putting this, this is new material tonight, this is the, the, the fifth one, and that is the validity of wealth accumulation. Listen to what I said. The validity, if not the righteousness, of wealth accumulation with no limits. Now, think about that a minute. How many times in the last several years have you heard that, well, you know, it's okay to make a couple of million dollars or 10 million or 20 million, but if you're making 20 billion or 30, that's just too much money. Who has the right to say that? What human being has the right to limit another person's ability to produce? Because that's what it is. And somebody who's smart enough and talented enough to produce something that is valuable to the rest of the human race and to make unbelievable amounts of money uh, ought to reap the rewards of their work. Whether they're working on a car in a garage or whether they are Bill Gates and they've, they've uh, produced everything that Microsoft has produced, each one has the right to enjoy everything that they produce except for that which is, which is uh, legitimately taxed. So Scripture has an has a important view here. Proverbs 13.22 states, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Now, I just want to focus on that first line in this proverb. A good man. So there's a value judgment made here. The word that is used in the Hebrew is tov. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That means that it is, the, you say the use of the word good and wise in Proverbs, that someone who is wise and mature operating on biblical wisdom is going to be so productive that they will leave property and money and value, valued goods to their children's children, to their grandchildren. I can't tell you how many people over the years I've heard make statements like, well, I just want my money and my life to run out about the same time. That's not biblical. What's biblical is that to accumulate as much as you can and to preserve it so that that wealth is transferred to the next generation and then to the next generation. Yet what we hear from the world today is, well, let everybody just sort of start at the same place and we'll, we'll tax that inheritance so nobody gets a, a head start. Well, that, that's just a fraudulent idea. That's not biblical. That's not the righteousness that the Old Testament extols. That is unrighteous. The idea that you often hear today, well, we want everybody to pay their fair share. We're going to see what that means here in, in a few minutes. Fair share does not mean that the more you have, the more you give in taxes. That's not fair. That's not righteous according to the biblical standard. That is unrighteous. It is thievery on a biblical basis. Now, the 
divine viewpoint on this is that property was to be accumulated over the generations so that one generation would ha- would pass on more property, more wealth to the next generation. What does this develop? This develops and provides for the next generation and the generation after that to go through a prosperity test. Now, we know that, uh, sadly, no culture, no group of people has really passed the prosperity test. But that's what this was, was for. They were to uh, put them in a position where they were prosperous. Why was that a test? Because the, com- the second greatest command in the uh, Mosaic Law in the Torah was to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, it's hard. You can't give if you have nothing. I mean, if you've got an empty plate and somebody comes to you for food, there's, there's nothing there to give them. But if you have, if you have pantries full of food, then you have much to give. And so it becomes a test of generosity. It becomes a test of grace. It becomes a test of Leviticus 19:18, which says to love your neighbor as yourself and to be generous and gracious uh, toward him. So with the accumulation of wealth comes the prosperity test, and with that comes a test of grace and a test of compassion for those who are less fortunate. Now, they may be less fortunate for a number of reasons. They may be less fortunate because they've made bad decisions, and they've been lazy, they've been irresponsible. Is that a reason not to extend grace to them? Sometimes we talk like it means that. That wasn't a reason for God not to extend grace to any of us. God didn't sit there and say, well, you know, I know how many times you've screwed up, and I know how many more times you're going to screw up, and I know how many times you're going to fail and turn your back on doctrine over the rest of your life. I'm not sure I'm going to be gracious to you anymore because you're going to abuse it. How many times do we think, well, there's somebody out here, they're, they're poor, they're going to abuse whatever it is I give them. God didn't let that stop him. Now, that's an interesting thought to work with. There's a, there's a line that we have to draw between what we see in the Scripture between responsibly helping people and irresponsibly helping people, but helping people who will still abuse our help is not a reason to not help them. That's clear from the Scripture. That much, I think, we can say. Another passage that goes along with this is Proverbs 13.22. A good man... Uh, uh, is that what I just read? That is. Second Corinthians 12.14. Now, for the third time, Paul said, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. For I do not seek yours, that is, what you have, uh, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents but the parents for the children. Now, the economic principle there is it's the responsibility of the parents to set aside wealth that is later passed on to the children. It's not the children's responsibility to go out there and have a good job so they can take care of you in your senior years. It's great when that happens, but that's not the standard of Scripture. The standard of Scripture is that we should... So, so responsibly use what God gives us and save that we're not a burden to our children. In fact, when it's all over with, they have been blessed with extra. Now, the next fence post we're putting down is, I'm calling it tithing. 
the limited safety net. Okay, tithing, a limited safety net. We talk about it, the welfare system that we have today, that uh, a term you'll hear to describe that is a term, it's a safety net for those who uh, fail for whatever reason, those who don't have jobs. It, it somehow, it's going to provide food, shelter, and clothing for those who have, uh, who don't have. Well, let's look at how God in his wisdom provided a safety net for those, the widows, the orphans. And when you look at how culture was at that time, you look at the Mosaic law at that time, uh, there wasn't a, a lot, there was a certain vulnerability that widows and orphans had that men did not have. And so God, it, God provides for them. And he does this through the tithe. There were three different tithes in the Old Testament. I want you to look at the, we'll look at the, uh, the first one we'll look at is Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14. If I've got it, got it up here on the screen. No, Deuteronomy fourteen, fourteen twenty-eight and twenty-nine. Now, there's another verse in Deuteronomy that applies to this, and I'm going to read it to you first. And you you ought to highlight these and put a mark in the margin. There are three different tithes in the Mosaic Law. So often today you hear people say, "Well, they need to give their tithe to the church," as if there's one. Well, first of all, tithing was never for the church who was just in the Old Testament economy. It was basically the tax system that was established in the Mosaic Law to provide for the needs of the nation. So it recognizes the legitimacy of a nation to tax the citizens a certain amount. But a tithe was a flat tax. It was 10% for everybody. It was 10% if you were poor. It was 10% if you were filthy rich. It was 10% if you were Bill Gates, and it was 10% if you're the you know, drunk that shows up down here at the Star of Hope every other night. It's always the same amount for everybody. It didn't matter whether you made uh, 20 bucks or whether you made 20 billion bucks. 10, 10% that's righteous. By God's standard, if you say, no, 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 we need to have a progressive tax system, the rich need to pay more percentage-wise than the poor, that is unrighteous according to the word of God, that is foolish, and it is destructive to a nation, and it is destructive to the poor in the nation, and it is destructive to the people in the nation, because it teaches people who have less to be dependent upon those who have more, and it destroys their pride and their self-esteem and their desire and their ability to work and labor for that which is theirs. But God did recognize that there was a need to have a minimal safety net. Deuteronomy 26.12, I'll read first, then we'll look at the passage I just had you go to. Both of these speak of the same tithe that was this was a tithe that was only taken up every third year not every year but every third year when you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year the year of tithing and have given it to the levite the stranger 
the fatherless and the widow so that they may eat within your gates and be filled. Notice that's the purpose. It is a tithe that was to be given to the Levite because he had no possession in the land. The, the, the priests and Levites did not have land. That tribe was not given a, a land allotment in Israel. The Levite, the stranger, the stranger is the alien, the immigrant, the non-Jewish resident within the land. The fatherless, that's the orphans. The fathers have been killed in war or disease. They have no bread. In that culture, the father provided everything. The, the mother, the, the women did not necessarily uh, produce. Uh, so you have the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, who was often left, uh, sometimes left destitute. Sometimes they had property. But notice it's not making a distinction here between the fatherless that have property and the widow that have property and those that didn't. So there, there's a uh, provision here that this tithe would be then used so that they may eat within your gates and be filled. Now, the assumption from the text is that if uh, with, without this, they wouldn't eat, so this is distributed to those who otherwise would not eat. So there is a minimal safety net there. And taking a 10% tax once every three years to deal with this is a minimal safety net, trust me. Uh, then we have a second tithe. The, the next two tithes were taken every year, 10% uh, of the income. Numbers 18.21, behold, I have, uh, or excuse me, I was going to read from uh, Deuteronomy 14.28 and 29 on the third tithe. I got ahead of myself. Deuteronomy 14.28, the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year, stored up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates, may come and eat and be satisfied. Now, it's not just a little bit. They're going to be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. In other words, if you're not taking care of the Levite and the fatherless and the widow, then God's not going to bless you. I mean, that's really clear. God's saying that, that, that the nation needs to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. But it is a limited safety net. Numbers 18, 21 to 25 is another uh, section we'll look at. We'll look at Numbers 18, 21 to 26. So, so just turn there, link that, write a note in the margin so you can trace your way back. Numbers 18, 21, this is the tithe that supports the Levites. Behold, I've given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they performed, the work of the tabernacle of Medan. Now, what are they doing? Is this a free gift? No. They're working. They're laboring. They're, they're not just getting a handout. They are do, performing work. Uh, because, but because they didn't have land to, to bring about production, they are given a, a tithe. Verse 22, hereafter the children of Israel shall not come near the tabernacle of meeting lest they bear sin and die, but the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Uh, verse 24, for the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance, as a possession. Therefore I have said to them among the children of Israel, they shall have no possession, that is in terms of land. Verse 
And so one tithe went to the Levites. Now, in today's governmental world, the role of the Levites was to, they were the government workers. They were the ones who took care. It was a theocracy. So God is the ultimate authority over the nation. And the place from which he administered his rule was the tabernacle. And those who took care of the tabernacle and who stood as the intermediaries between God and the people were the Levites. And so they were worthy of, of, of pay and earning an income from their work, and so that was the purpose of this, this tithe. Basically, it took care of paying for the government. Now, Deuteronomy 14.22 is another passage. And I, this one is the one that really interests, has always interested me. In Deuteronomy 14.22, we read, You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. So you take your production, that's your profit, and 10% you give, whether it's a big production or small production. Some years, so if you look at this in terms of the increase of your grain, that would be the gross national product. So you take 10% of the gross national product, and verse 23 says, you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide, the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn of your herds and of your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Party time. Every year. You're going to take 10% of the gross national product. Now think about this. One year you're having a party and you're having the finest wine. You are having the finest prime beef that, that money could buy. Everything is cooked by the finest chefs. Ten years later, you're eating stringy old chicken. The vegetables are overcooked. The cooks that are there haven't done it much. The wine is a little flat. Boone's Farm. Now, this is a, a, a visual example that something's changed. The party we had 10 years ago, remember that? That was really great. But this year it's not so great. What's happened? What changed? What caused that? This is a real concrete example that when the Israelites were obedient to God, God would bless them and they would have just this enormous party and they weren't going into debt for it. They weren't spending money they didn't have. And then 10 years later, it would be a much lower quality. So one tithe went to support the bureaucracy of the theocracy. One tithe went to have a party every year. And then one tithe was taken every third year to take care of the widows, the orphans, the uh, stranger, and the, the Levites. But what we learn from this is that one, one principle we learn about taxation is that taxation to be fair or to be righteous the biblical term, tzaddik, meant that it had to be an equal percentage. It was a flat rate tax. It was the same for everybody, rich or poor. Now, does that mean that uh, today it would be wrong to have a consumption tax like a sales tax instead of uh, other things? I don't think that's, that's necessarily uh, the right conclusion. But I do think it is a right conclusion that a progressive income tax, 
where the more money you make, the higher your percentage of taxes is unjust and unfair. And to turn it around and say that it is unjust for the rich or those who are so-called rich to pay uh, to pay the same as what a poor person pays and to say that that is unrighteous is exactly the condemnation that the later prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, came along and said would happen when the people were calling good, bad, and bad, good. They've reversed the polarities of what is right and wrong. And that's exactly what we see in this nation. We see people at government level and all over demagogues saying that we need to tax the rich more. They need to have a higher percentage. And on the basis of what the Hebrew Scripture says, that is unrighteous and it is evil. And it will lead to the destruction of a nation. So we see that God had a minimal safety net in terms of the tithe, but the primary safety net is personal responsibility and personal compassion. And the basic principle for this is laid down in Leviticus 19.18. They were to love their neighbor as themselves. It was the responsibility of each citizen in Israel to take care of one another, not to say, well, you know, the government will take care of it. Let God take care of it. We're just going to hoard our money. That wasn't right either. So the basic principle is Leviticus 19.18. The second basic principle is grace orientation. Even if, and grace orientation means that good things, kind things, generous things are done to undeserving people, like salvation. But that starts getting a little too close to home. Deuteronomy 15.7 recognizes this principle. If there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns, in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart. Notice that. That's the first thing he says. Don't harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. He doesn't put a stipulation on this. I find that interesting. Maybe he's a failure. Maybe he's a drunk. Doesn't put that qualification in there. He said, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Now, does that mean you throw common sense and good sense out the door? No. If all he does is abuse it, well, maybe you need to put some stipulations on this. God, God did that uh, in in um, in Numbers, Numbers chapter nineteen, I believe. It's either Numbers nineteen or Leviticus nineteen. Maybe it's Leviticus nineteen. I got my notes finished, had not saved, and then boom, lost the whole thing tonight. So I, in the last forty-five minutes, I had to rewrite everything. I think it's Numbers nineteen. Leviticus, Leviticus 19, maybe you're right. No? Yeah, Leviticus 19.9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field. This applied to every farmer. When you're reaping and you go out to your harvest, don't cut, don't harvest everything. Round the corners. Leave the, some crop out there. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap 
the corners of your field or fully reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. What's the principle? It's not a free handout. They've got to get up and they've got to go out and they've got to work for it. They've got to go out into the field and they have to harvest it for themselves. They're not just getting a check that's automatically deposited or cash that's given to them so they can go spend it however they want to. They have to understand that they're still working for what they're given. So a principle here is, is when I was, was talking about the previous passage in Deuteronomy 15, 7, and 8, doesn't mean that you can't put some stipulations on on the, the gift that you're giving to help somebody and saying, okay, uh, I want to I help you. I, I want to help you take care of your need. I'm going to give you a job. Sort of reminds me of a joke I got this last week about, um, you know, a guy was, uh, went over to visit a family and they had a daughter that they were very proud of and, and they were just diehard liberals. And uh, when he started talking to the daughter, she just graduated from college and or from high school, getting ready to go to college. And and he was saying, "Well, what do you want to do with your life?" I said, "Well, I want to be in a position where I can help the poor and and uh, go into politics, and we can give them houses and we can give them food and and give them everything." And he said, "Well, you know, let me help you out right now. You want to help the poor, right?" So why don't you come over to my house? My yard needs to be mowed and my garden needs to be weeded and my windows need to be washed and I'll pay you a couple hundred dollars and we'll take that $200 and we'll go down uh, to the uh, uh, town square to the corner uh, down under I-10 and we'll find a homeless person and you can give them that $200. And the the girl thought for about two seconds and she said well well why don't you just go hire the, the the homeless person to come over and cut your grass and do the weeding and uh and and wash your windows and then give him the 200 ducks 200 bucks and the guy said welcome to the republican party responsibility that's the primary thing to look at and so uh, don't just you don't see this idea of just a a handout. Well, there's a lot more to be said about the poor and the legitimacy of compassion to the poor, but we'll come back and look at that next time. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we are so thankful at this time that we live in this nation. We're thankful for our forefathers, for those who came here from England and from Scotland and from Germany and from Scandinavia and from so many other areas. In those early colonial times when they came motivated by a desire to freely worship you because they brought with them, whether they were uh, from Scandinavia or Germany or Switzerland or uh, from England or Scotland, they brought with them a, a similar view of God and the scriptures and that this, this shaped the thinking of this culture that led them to uh, a view of freedom and liberty that was unique from every other nation that had preceded them, and that you blessed them. And as they uh, fought for their independence against unjust rulership from England, that you blessed that, and a new nation was born. And we're thankful for our heritage because it's a heritage that is grounded in your word. And it is that heritage that we still are benefiting from. 
to whatever degree. Each year diminishes a little more. But yet we're thankful, we're grateful for those blessings and the freedom that we have. And Father, as we go through this holiday period the next few days, we pray that we might be mindful that all that we have, all that we are, every joy, every benefit, every everything that happens during the next three or four days and everything that happens in our lives as a whole is from your grace, especially our so great salvation. And so, Father, we pray that you would um, just watch over us as we travel, that you would provide opportunities to witness during this time, and that you would be glorified by us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.